Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, is the unborn human a potential person or an actual person? Today, hello, Ken and Dave. Uh, greetings to you both. Hello. <laughs> hello, Joe. Uh, Ken, we're recording this podcast prior to the Supreme Court handing down its decision on abortion. So we, with that in mind, uh, there are nevertheless issues and questions that are always out there. And we wanted to take this opportunity to, uh, you wanted to comment and, and give your approach as a theologian and philosopher to, to a particular objection that is out there. Maybe you can set it up for us and then we'll get into it. Yeah, that's exactly right, Joe. Um, RTV is planning to uh, have a, a broad response to this, uh, you know, soon coming uh, word from the Supreme Court. And uh, one of the uh, one of the things that comes out of this is, of course, arguments go back and forth uh, between what we would call the pro-choice camp and the pro-life camp. And uh, one that is fairly common kind of creates uh, a story or an analogy. And I'm, I'm going to read it here. Uh, there is a common ethical scenario pro-choicers challenge pro-lifers with. Uh, and it goes like this. If a building was on fire and there was a five-year-old child and a container with 200 frozen embryos, which would you save? This challenge theoretically proves that even pro-lifers acknowledge potential persons versus actual persons. So I, I thought what we could do in our program today is to, uh, to look at that. Uh, it's, I think it's being used as an analogy, uh, as a way of kind of uh, picturing uh, uh, how one might develop, uh, you know, a value of, of, of human life. So I, I think we can, we can evaluate that. And then I'd like to proceed to look at what I think is really the underlying pro-life argument in terms of the human, the unborn human being an actual person. Mm, all right. Great. Well, thank you for explaining that. Uh, on a podcast like this, there are many other questions that, that will come up. And we are, we are trying to narrow the focus to this one, although I'm sure you'll hit on other, other things as they come up. So bear that in mind as a listener. Yeah, I asked uh, Mark Perez to weigh in on this. Unfortunately, we couldn't get Mark's schedule to, to, uh, to meet our own. But I ask him to give some response. Mark Perez is, of course, uh, the chief operating officer here at Reasons to Believe. And even more specifically, he's a philosopher of science. Uh, and so I ask him to kind of think about this, uh, this analogy and, and how what he would have to say about it. And, and Mark is a, is a logic professor. He's taught uh, our Reasons Institute course. So again, let me give the scenario. So there is a, there's a fire, uh, you know, a building's on fire and there's a five-year-old child in there and there's 200 frozen embryos. Well, if you have to make a decision about which to save, what are you going to do? 
And the implication from this analogy is that, of course, you would save the child instead of the, uh, the embryos. And, that, and the reason you do that is because the embryos are potential persons versus the child who is an actual person. Well, Mark Perez made four points, and I want to review them briefly and maybe make a couple comments about them. Uh, Mark said, number one, the pro-abortion argument as posed in the hypothetical is a red herring. Even if pro-lifers believe that an embryo is merely a potential person, the pro-lifers belief does not justify the killing of the potential person, embryo in an elective abortion. So uh, a red herring, if you're not familiar with it, is an informal logical fallacy that we put in the diversionary category, it's, it's in effect, you change the subject. Mm. So Mark here thinks that this analogy moves away from the real issue. Then, he, then his second point is this, he says the hypothetical argument as opposed, as posed is analogous, excuse me, let me read that again. The hypothetical argument as posed is not analogous to the real question. A closer analogy would be if there were 200 embryos in a burning building, should pro-life person take action in an attempt to save them? I think Mark is correct there. Uh, I'm gonna have more to say about this analogy in just a minute or two, but I think he's right. I think whenever you engage in argumentation, you don't wanna slant your reasoning. You don't wanna tilt it, you know, deck stacking. You wanna, you wanna present an argument in the most neutral way you can. And I think that that's a powerful point that Mark, Mark is making there. His third point, both sides of the debate should avoid the ad hominem and emotionally driven red herrings and instead answer the central question of whether or when the destruction of a zygote or embryo is justified. Again, I think that's a very important point that informal fallacies kind of uh, you know, the, the problem with them is they get your reasoning off the track. Mm -hmm. And as much as you can, uh, you want to address questions straight on. You don't want to attack anybody's character. You don't want to change the subject and tilt it toward your perspective. Uh, I think that's a good point that Mark is making there. And then the fourth point Mark makes is this. Both sides need to recognize that the emotions they bring to the central questions are likely to lead even the most open-minded uh, people to confirmation bias, vague terminology, and other reasoning errors that degrade charitable, productive discourse. Again, I think Mark is going back to our basic ideas of reasoning. And, uh, you know, again, you want to, you want to, set your emotion aside if you can. Emotions are not bad things, they're good things. That's what makes, that's part of what makes us human beings. But when you face a, a question or you're analyzing something logically, you wanna try to set aside your emotion or your bias. And I think all human beings have biases. We all have prejudices. None of us are neutral, and nobody has a neutral worldview. We, we all come to the table with all kinds of ideas. But I think Mark is making some very good points in that be aware that uh, uh, you might really think the pro-choice position is right, or you might 
be in the reverse, the pro-life position is right. Make sure that you don't push your conclusion forward without careful support. And don't, don't allow your emotions to kind of pull you into that kind of thing. Joe and Dave comments about Mark's point there, if, you, if you'd like. Yeah, I'm tracking and uh, I'm right, right there with you. All right, Dave, how about you? Yeah, I just, uh, I think his point of not being sucked into a different analogy here is exactly correct. It would, it, I think his analogy is far better what would you do if you had to save, you know, the 200 embryos, not mixing it with the child? <clears throat> yeah, I, th I think Mark's offering an analogy that's, that's more straight up uh, rather than kind of tilting it. Now, I had a, a few additional comments that I'd like to share. Uh, and my first point is simply this, that even if one accepts the fire rescue dilemma analogy, now I don't, I think it's faulty. But even if you do accept it, um, and if you accept the conclusion uh, that one would or should choose the child over the embryos, I still don't think, uh, even accepting it as it is, I still don't think it gives enough reflection to the genuine value of the unchosen. And here I want to develop that a little bit with you. Uh, I have a friend I grew up with, uh, his name is Ron, and uh, Ron wanted to be a fireman from probably elementary school. You know, I've, I've noticed that in that particular profession, it's almost like a brotherhood. It's, it's like a calling. I, I was watching a, a 60 Minutes program, and um, it, it echoed back to 2001 with the Twin Towers, 9-11. Uh, 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 the FDNY, the, the fire department of New York, they lost like 350 firefighters within an hour. Mm. And uh, of course, that's been some time now, more than 20 years, but many of the uh, children who lost their fathers, their firefighter fathers have now become themselves firefighters. Wow. So this is a very, you know, tradition. It, it is, it's a, like a calling in life. Well, uh, I would say that, you know, when you're in a fire, the fact that you can choose one party over another doesn't necessarily show you what's ultimately of value. And here I, you know, here I would offer a couple ideas. Um, you know, the first one is, what if, uh, what if there's two children and one's my daughter and one's my son? Or, or what if it, what if there's my grandfather, my grandmother, and and my child? If I chose one, does that mean that the other doesn't have any value? And of course, uh, this echoes back to a, a movie, a, a very disturbing movie. Movie. I'm not necessarily recommending it, though. I wish everybody could see a particular clip in this movie. It's called Sophie's Choice. Uh, the storyline, of course, uh, Meryl Streep plays the leading role along with Kevin Kline and. Again, it's a disturbing movie. If you're, uh, if you're a Christian, you may not appreciate all parts of this movie by any stretch of the imagination. But Sophie is uh, captured by the Nazis and she has two small children, a, a son and a daughter. And uh, one of the Nazis comes up to her and uh, uh, first of all, he tries to seduce her. Uh, but then he says to her, uh, 
you know, you're you're going to have to your kids are going to have to be sent to the death camp, you know, and and that's right that the there was a line you were either in the line to be exterminated or you were in the line to live a little bit longer and even those people who lived longer might be ultimately gassed but uh, the Nazi officer says to her in the most cruel fashion. And, and that's the way National Socialism was. It was a cruel, hateful system. Um, I'm so pleased that it, was, that it was destroyed, that it was stopped uh, before it was, got the chance to kill even more millions of people. But the Nazi officer says to Sophie, well, uh, 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 you know, she, she says to him, I'm, I'm not a Jew, I'm, I'm Polish. And so he says, oh, you believe in the savior. And she said, yeah, I believe in Christ. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, what does he care about whether she's a Christian when, you know, he is an antichrist? But nevertheless, that's part of that complex movie. But then he says this to her. He says, well, then choose. You can keep one of your children. The other will be gassed. Hmm. And of course, she is deeply troubled by all of this. She says, no, don't make me choose. I cannot choose. And he forces her. He says, look, I'll send all of you to the gas chamber if you don't choose. So uh, she ultimately gives up her daughter and uh, chooses to keep her son. Now, in that, uh, and this is kind of what I don't like about this analogy. I don't like analogies that, that don't allow you to sit back and, and reflect it makes you make a choice whether you want to or not. And I think that's part of the logical problem we're dealing with here. Mm. Uh, but I also think that, you know, Sophie gives up her daughter, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't value her daughter. So even if you accept this analogy as legitimate, and I don't, uh, I still don't think it, it shows you that the embryos don't have value. Now, a second point I make is, uh, building on that first one is, I don't think the fire rescue dilemma analogy is legit because it creates emotion and it inclines toward reaction rather than reflection. Now, now in logic, we say there are informal fallacies called slanting or deck stacking. Slanting is where you present your argument in such a way as you as you, uh, you know, it, it's not fair-minded. It's not looking at pros and cons, positives and negatives. It's putting it in a particular way where it's kind of forcing you to make this, this decision. Uh, I think that's deck stacking. And that's why I think it's, it's a faulty analogy. Now, number three, uh, I also think it's faulty for another reason. I think in fact, it's question begging. Now, let me make a very uh, important point here. I notice in, in popular uh, discourse, people often say, well, that begs the question. And what, that, what they mean by that is, well, it, 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 the, it anticipates this question. Well, that's not what question begging is in logic. Uh, begging the question in logic is circular reasoning. It's, it's accepting your conclusion before you actually support your conclusion with evidence. Mm -hmm. And you have, to be, you have to be careful about question begging for two reasons. One, it's very easy to commit and it's very hard to detect. It's easy to commit 
because we're committed to our beliefs. None of us are neutral. That's a point I think the presuppositional apologetic camp gets very right. All of us have, all of us have positions we're committed to. You have to be careful that you don't kind of press in. And the, the way I think that this is committed question begging is that it's already assumed by the way the argument is constructed that the embryos are not persons and that therefore they have lesser value. Now, again, a little bit later, I wanna develop a pro-life argument in that context, but let me make a fourth point here. I think the pro-choice fire rescue dilemma analogy is faulty because it's a logical diversion. Now I'm here, I'm agreeing with Mark. It doesn't address the sophisticated philosophical pro-life argument for the unborn human actually being a human person. So I, I think it's diversionary. It's taken us off the track. There is, I think, a very powerful uh, argument for the unborn being actual persons, not, not merely potential persons, but being actual persons. But before we go there, I want to hear from Joe and Dave about this analogy and about my reasoning, Mark's reasoning, or anything you'd like yeah. to share. Yeah, just to uh, sum it up for uh, lay listeners like me, uh, we would answer the question posed by uh, this person. Uh, yes, of course, we're going to save uh, the child, but it does not entail that the embryos are not persons. It, all of that is diversionary and suffers from logical fallacies, as, as both you and Mark have pointed out. But it doesn't mean we're not going to go in and save one person and kill uh, embryos. We we would like to save everybody, but right. as posed, you know, we had to choose one or the other. That's exactly right. And and remember, I mean, even if we go back to Sophie's choice, uh, why did Sophie allow her daughter to be taken? Well, in one sense, she didn't have any. She didn't make that decision. Uh, you know, that's what totalitarian governments do. That's what evil forces do. They press in on you and force you to act in particular ways. But maybe Sophie thought, well, you know, my son is a male. Maybe, uh, uh, you know, he can help me in ways that my daughter can't. Who knows what went through her mind in, in that type of decision. So just because you're kind of forced to make a decision doesn't mean the one you don't choose has somehow lesser value. Mm -hmm. Dave, any further thoughts about this analogy? Well, you know, as you were sharing the analogy, I just thought to myself, there could be, for instance, technologies developed to where you could say that among these 200 embryos, that some of them have much greater potential for being an Einstein or a great composer or, or having you know, special characteristics uh, bodily or psychologically or mentally. Uh, would you then uh, change your mind and, and save the embryo instead of the child? You could also anticipate the possibility that the child, the five-year-old child is, uh, is not a healthy child. And you know, so there's, there's just too many variables here. I don't think it's a very good analogy at all for the, the question that we're trying to answer. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. I, that, is a, that is a helpful idea. And, and 
and again, and I'm not against analogies. I, I think that analogies are a very natural way that people reason. We, we, you know, we think in terms of kind of, let me paint a picture for you, and then I'll compare that picture with another idea. And of course, analogies are always inductive. They're at best probabilistic. Um, and, and yet we also want to compare what we call, um, you know, points of, of commonality versus, versus points of disanalogy. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very faulty uh, way of reasoning. There's, a, there's another story that I've heard told about an individual, a child or a potential child that's going to be born of a mother who has been a former prostitute, of, a, of circumstances where there's no father, uh, you know, a poor, there's poverty in the area, all kinds of very negative things that would, that would go against that, in that child had it been born uh, that would not be a good quality of life for that person. And so you could easily in your mind justify the mother aborting that child. And, and at the end of the story, they say, if you aborted that child, you just aborted Beethoven. Yeah, mm. right, right. Yeah, and if you think of the number of unborn children that have been destroyed, uh, even just in America, let alone around the globe, uh, you can't help but wonder uh, who were those, who would they be? Had they exactly. Been? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let me then move to what I think is a, a very powerful argument, and I want our listeners to, to give careful consideration to it. I think a good way is kind of setting forth um, the pro-life view and the pro-choice view. Um, I'm not saying I'm speaking for all pro-life people here, but, but I think I can speak for people uh, who are major pro-life authors. So, you know, there, there are Christian apologists who have uh, decided that their um, career is, is largely going to be involved in defending the dignity and value of human life. I, I have a couple friends who work in that particular field. They have training in uh, philosophy, theology, law, uh, and they're kind of at the cutting edge of making these arguments. Well, here, here, are, here are two positions I'm gonna set forth. The first one is the pro-life view. And I would say the unborn are human persons by nature or being. The unborn are human persons by nature or being and are undergoing development. So this first argument essentially says that personhood is, is not something you achieve by developing function. Mm. Human personhood is your very nature. Now, the pro-choice position, I think, would be reflected in this way. The unborn are not human persons, but are developing towards that eventuality. So, so here we're, we are really kind of getting into questions of ontology or metaphysics. What does it mean to be a human being? What, is, what does it mean to have, to have humanity? Now, here I'm going to give you some quotations uh, by one of my friends, uh, Frank Beckwith. I met Frank many years ago uh, when I worked at the Christian Research Institute. Uh, Frank is a philosopher. He is a professor of philosophy in Church State 
studies at Baylor University in, in Waco, Texas. Uh, and I interviewed Frank on the Bible Answer Man many years ago about the question of abortion. So he is one of those uh, Christian thinkers, philosophers, he's kind of dedicated a very important part of his career to defending a, a pro-life position. And it, he, here is a point I want to make, and then I want to read uh, a quote from Frank. I make this point, the issue concerning the unborn is not their status as humans, but their status as persons. Now, again, I, I want our listeners to hear that. The issue about the unborn, concerning the unborn, is not their status as humans, but their status as persons. Uh, and this is what Frank says. This is from a, a popular article uh, that he, an interview he did with the National Review. Uh, it's a, it, the title is Abortion and Human Equality. Frank says, no one, not even the most sophisticated advocates of abortion choice, denies that the unborn are human beings but one can only exclude them from the community of those uh, whose lives we must respect if one claims that they lack some morally sufficient characteristic that is possessed by mature and healthy human beings. Here's that first point. Um, really, science has helped us see that life begins at conception. I don't think there's any way of getting around that. The unborn are human. The question is not their humanity. The question is their personhood. And is there something, uh, is, is there something about the unborn that they lack that people who uh, are born, children, for example, that, that they lack? So I think the position has uh, moved from the early stage where people questioned whether the unborn were human beings. Uh, I think uh, science tells us from the moment of conception, we have human beings. Ultrasound, uh, all of these advanced technologies have helped us to see the growth of the unborn uh, human within the womb of the mother. So we're not arguing about humanity. On, on a sharp level of debate between pro-choice and pro-life, it's about whether they're persons. That, that's Peter Singer's point. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. And one of the arguments he brings to bear is that the unborn, they're not persons. They don't have self-consciousness. They don't have an awareness. He even argues that that's true of babies. Uh, he says that up until two years old, children don't have self-awareness. So they're not really persons. In fact, he's even said that it would, he proposed that parents ought to have two years to decide whether they want to kill their baby. Hmm. So that's, he represents what I would call, um, and if I'm going to give any credit to Peter Singer, I think he's trying to be consistent with his worldview. He, you know, he, uh, he states it like it is. It, to me, it's shocking and revolting, mm -hmm. but I think he's stating it as, as he sees it. So it's not a question of their humanity. It is the question of whether an unborn is an actual person or merely a potential person. Yeah. Second point, the issue concerning the unborn is not their status as humans, but their functional capacities as compared with born persons. Now, again, I'm going to quote Frank Beckwith. 
Frank says, the reason, as I have already noted, is not because there is disagreement over whether all living human beings are, are human beings and that the unborn are among them. Rather, it is over the question of what sorts of abilities or characteristics a human being must possess in order to have moral status. So the only way you can really bring an argument for abortion is to say that the unborn lacks something fundamental that born people have. They're both human beings, but are they on the same level? And here Beckwith points out that the pro-choice position says there are qualities, characteristics, abilities that the unborn lack. Peter Singer again would say, well, some of the things they lack are self-awareness. They don't have uh, an, a, a consciousness. But again, he's going to say that about uh, young, young babies as, uh, as well. Now, here's the third point, and I think it's the most important point. And so I, I uh, Joe and Dave, I, I want to take a little bit more time with this point because I, I think it, it gets at the real pro-life argument uh, against abortion. Uh, that philosophically, personhood is defined by nature or being, not by function. Let me say it again. Philosophically, personhood is defined by nature or being, not by function or capacity. Now, here's what uh, Beckwith says. He says, pro-lifers, with few exceptions, argue that the unborn is a moral subject, that is a person. From the moment it comes into being at conception, because it is an individual human being and all human beings have a personal nature, even when they are not presently exercising the powers that flow from that nature's essential properties, these essential properties include capacities for personal expression, rational thought, and moral agency. The maturation of these capacities is the perfection of a human being's nature. Contrary to what some abortion choice critics claim, the human fetus can be wronged even before it can know it has been wronged. So here is where we get down to it now. Uh, when pro-choice philosophers and pro-life pro philosophers debate these issues, it's not about functional capacities, it's about whether we have a nature, a human nature that is a given. And that human nature is by itself personal. Now, it's, it's going to develop, and here I go back to that point I made earlier, for the pro-life perspective, the unborn are human persons by nature are being and are undergoing development. So are they, are they human being, are they human persons who are undergoing development, or are they developing toward being human persons? That's the debate, right? Yeah. Now, Beckwith adds one more point here that I want to read. This is from an, another article uh, that he wrote. Uh, it's entitled Abortion, Bioethics, and Personhood, a Philosophical Reflection. It's from, it's from the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. He says this, consequently, what is crucially morally, what is crucial morally is the being of a person, not his or her function. A human person does not come into existence when human function arises. 
but rather a human person is an entity that has the natural inherent capacity to give rise to human functions. Whether or not those functions are ever attained, and since the unborn being has this natural inherent capacity for the, from the moment of his existence, she is a person as long as she exists. As theologian John Def Jefferson Davis writes, quote, our ability to have conscious experiences and reflections arise out of our personhood. The basic metaphysical reality of personhood precedes the unfolding of the conscious abilities to inherit it. That is really the argument behind the pro-life position that human beings have a nature and part of the nature of being a human being is, to, is personhood. And personhood is given, it is not developed toward. So it's true that uh, uh, the unborn child and even babies are growing in development but they're not growing toward being a person. They're all, they already have a personal nature by being human. And that personal nature is then going to lead to capacities for self-consciousness and, and reasoning and rationality. So in many respects, I think what we can say here is it comes down to worldview. Mm -hmm. From a Christian worldview, we believe that we have a human nature it's, it's made in the image of God. It's made to know God, to love God, to serve God, and therefore is already of a personal nature. It, it's, not like, uh, it's not like an animal nature. It's a human nature. So I, I think what's problematic about uh, the analogy that we saw earlier is that it kind of ignores kind of that deeper discussion of, of what is a human being. Um, and I think that that in many respects uh, is what gets at it. Um, in fact, uh, here's a quote from J.P. Moreland, who is a Christian philosopher, a, a, another friend of mine and a friend of RTB. Moreland says this, it is because an entity has an, an essence and falls within a natural kind that it can possess a unity of dispositions, capacities, parts and properties at a given time and can man maintain identity uh, through change. So again, we're kind of back to the idea that um, if, if, if the unborn, and, and we know they're human, if they have a human nature, then that human nature is a personal human nature. It doesn't rule out that they're that they're under development, they're undergoing development. But what the pro-life pro, pro position denies is that somehow they're developing toward personhood, rather they're persons undergoing development already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful, uh, the, the explanation of um, uh, personhood by nature and by being, because if you look at the the other view from pro-choice perspective that um, uh, it, it, it relates to our functional capacities. Could you not say that there are people who lose their functional capacities? Let's say somebody is comatose for a time in the hospital. Are they no longer persons because they've lost all this function? Or you could also say 
there could be robots or computers that far exceed human functional capacity, uh, but we don't consider them uh, superior or, or maybe there are people who do, I don't know. But you see what I'm getting at there, Ken? Yeah, ex I mean, that's, that's the exact point I think that should be drawn that there may be many times in the life of a human being, a human person, you know, we, unlike a century ago, people are living longer, they experience things like dementia. I mean, in, in the 19th century, people often died of infectious diseases. Uh, today, people by and large deteriorate, their heart wears out, uh, you know, one of their organs wears out. Uh, there may be times where a person is comatose, uh, where a person doesn't have these capacities, but that doesn't remove their humanity. And of course, this echoes back to previous times, uh, again, in the 19th century, you know, the idea of vivisection, the idea of, uh, you know, should we, should we eliminate people who don't have, maybe they have Down syndrome, maybe they have other, other problems. I think this really gets deeply into the Christian view of creation, the Christian view of the Imago Dei. You know, uh, it, let's say a baby is born and that baby has Down syndrome. It doesn't mean that that, that individual is not a person. Uh, maybe the, you know, the, the physical effects are going to prohibit that individual person from developing these awarenesses like a kid that is not affected by Down syndrome. But that's still a human life. It's still a human person. And again, that, that kind of leads us to talk about the dignity and the value of human life. Uh, and I, I, I think of, uh, again, I think of the Nazis, uh, where, you know, they are, they're pushing people and they're forcing people and they feel like they can, you know, exterminate a whole race of people uh, based upon their, their own kind of uh, deformed, their, uh, you know, philosophical worldview that I think was deeply immoral. But th these are the kinds of questions that really are underneath it. And so in many ways, Christians and non-Christians, even though we share a lot of things in common, and even though uh, because non-Christians are made in the image of God and experience common grace and are recipients of general revelation, there are many things they can know and they can do. And yet, when it comes to worldview, there often is a, a clash of ideas. And I think that uh, people like Beckwith and others make a very powerful case uh, mm -hmm. about a, a human nature and a human personhood that is rooted in our being and in our nature rather than in some kind of developmental function. Yeah, very good. Yeah, just just to I, I want to reemphasize when when you call attention to this idea of of the development of functionality, you automatically are forced to ask the question: At what? Where's the line? Where does the person trans transition from being a non-person to a person? That and you inevitably true. get into the question of whether a child. Uh, you know, is that is a person, 
until they're two years old or what Peter Singer is willing to acknowledge. And it's just, uh, it's horrifying to think of this is where we're headed. And in, in many respects, if you adopt a, you know, kind of a naturalistic Darwinian perspective, uh, you know, your, your classifications become very arbitrary um, uh, as opposed to kind of accepting this idea that there is a, there is a fundamental human nature. Let me give you one more quote, if I can. Uh, I'm going to utilize this quote in our next program as well. But um, this, is, uh, this is from a Catholic document, Evangelium Vitae. Uh, from the Latin, it's translated the Gospel of Life. This is written by Pope John Paul II, who many people consider one of the great Catholic leaders. Uh, John Paul, by the way, has now become a saint. So he's not only JP2, uh, John Paul II, but he is now considered a saint. Uh, this is from Evangelium Vitae, uh, number two, under the title, The Incomparable Worth of Human Beings. The Uncomparable Worth of Human Beings. Man is called to a fullness of life which far exceeds the dimensions of his earthly existence because it contains in sharing the very life of God, the loftiness of this supernatural vocation reveals the greatness of the inestimable value of human life, even in its temporal phase. Life, life in time, in fact, is the fundamental condition, the initial stage and an integral part of the entire unified process of human existence. It is a process which unexpectedly and undeservedly is enlightened by the promise and renewed by the gift of divine life, which will reach its full realization in eternity. And think about that for a moment, the incomparable worth of the human person. Um, you know, the Christian worldview, and of course, Catholics and Protestants, I think, share the same worldview same basic worldview, even with the differences that they have doctrinally, but the incomparable worth of a human being, it's because they're made in God's image, because they were made with the very purpose to know, to relate, and to love God, and their temporal existence here is only a part of that. Mm -hmm. They will exist into eternity, and could I say, by the way, that I think a lot of times when the problem of evil is, is raised, a lot of people would say, well, why does God allow that child to suffer? Or why did God allow this bad thing to happen to these people? But oftentimes the context is that this life is all there is. If there is a purpose for our life that goes on into eternity, then this time of suffering would be looked at very different in the context of eternity than it would be this life is all there is. So again, I want to underscore, I think it's, uh, I think the fire, uh, who you would rescue in the fire analogy is faulty. And I think uh, one of its fundamental problems is that it, it ignores a very sophisticated argument uh, about what a human nature is, that it is in fact personal. Very good. Well, I found that very helpful, Ken. Thank you. I certainly hope our listeners do as well. We're going to talk 
a little uh, about some more of these kinds of ideas uh, on the next podcast. So be sure to stay tuned for that one. And let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. In fact, some of you have uh, commented. We've been pleased to read your comments. Uh, and here's another one that's come in. I took my logic course with Ken Samples a few years ago at Biola and fell in love with his books, Seven Truths That Change the World and A World of Difference. These books are resources that I return to time and time again, as they are packed with incredible nuggets of wisdom. Chuck McWhorter. Well, Ken, you can't get a much better endorsement than that. Huh? <laughs> I didn't have to pay anything. But by the way, Joe, that reminds me, I'd like to offer a couple sources, if, if we could. Please. Uh, Frank Beckwith has a book entitled Politically Correct Death, Answering the Arguments for Abortion Rights. A second one by Beckwith, Defending Life, a Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion. And my own book, without a doubt, has a chapter entitled, Don't I Have a Right to Do What I Want with My Own Body? So mm. thanks for those uh, gracious words. I didn't, have to, I didn't even have to pay to get that done. That's pretty nice. <laughs> All right. We appreciate it. So keep those uh, comments coming. Uh, you and Don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. That's going to wrap it up for Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening, and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.